Welcome to Future Thinking, the Citywide Selector podcast focused on the trends and topics that will change the way in which the world works. I'm your host, Chris Slowly, the editor of Citywide Selector. In our last series, we spent more time on millennials than any other theme. We heard how companies are responding to their growing investment strength, as well as speaking to a millennial fund selector about the industry's desperate need for new blood. But what actually are millennials and how do they fit into the working world? And how do you involve them in your organisations and workplaces? I realise this may sound like we're hunting an elusive animal, but a sociological approach makes sense given the changes this generation is creating. So who better to discuss millennials, or Generation Y to give them their proper name, than Adam Kingle, author of Next Generation Leadership, which zeroed in on how young talent is developing. This conversation picks up on a keynote speech Adam gave at CityWire's World of Boutiques Europe event earlier this year, and expands on a lot of those talking points. Welcome to another episode of Future Thinking with me, Chris Sloney, the editor of CityWire Selector. Last time around, we did a couple of episodes looking at millennials, but this time we're going to have a slightly different take. My guest today is Adam Kingle, the managing director for the Duke Corporation Education at Duke University, and is previously an executive director of thought leadership at London Business School. Importantly for us, he's also an author and academic who's written extensively on the next generation of leaders. So Adam, thank you for joining us. No, it's a pleasure. By the way, Chris, you know, actually, I'm no longer at Duke. Uh, I, I'm an adjunct faculty at a number of universities, but no longer running uh, running someone else's shop. Okay, so my my research has fallen down at the first hurdle, but hopefully we can pick <laughs> it up from there. So we're joining because you spoke at our World of Boutiques Europe event last month, where we talked about the next generation of leaders, Generation Y or Millennials. Can we start with that? Which would you prefer? What should we be saying? Well, I use Generation Y uh, just for a couple of reasons. One is um, I notice that some people use millennials in uh, in a vaguer way. In other words, they kind of group both Gen Ys and Gen Zs in that group. And all of a sudden, it's just a much too large group of the youth, whatever that is. So, so I like to use Gen Y. Uh, the second reason is because these two uh, researchers named Strauss and Howe, who've kind of, who have literally written the books on uh, generations, at least from from the Western perspective, they typically use the term Generation Y, and they've said it's th- those those born between 1982 and 2004. Okay. Well, also, I was going to say, when you were saying, because people tend to use the term, I thought you were going to say as an insult, because we have seen no. it being used as sort of um, a derogatory term from time to time, with all the stuff about uh, gen uh, millennials spending their money on avocado toast rather than paying down a mortgage. It does yeah. seem to get thrown around quite a lot. It, it, is there a fear that it could be a, a negative connotation? Yeah, I, I have noticed that sometimes it has, a, it has a pejorative term, but I noticed that people tend not to use the pejorative when discussing Gen Y, which is maybe another reason why I like to use uh, to use Gen Y. And and I would add, by the way, not only because I've been studying uh, Gen Y for, uh, for over a decade, is I think the... Uh, the negative connotation is is they're much maligned, and and I and I don't think that there is a, a, a lot of validity to it. If anything, this is one of the one of the least lucky generations in, in in a long time in terms of the context in which they entered the workforce. But we can get into that if you want. Well, that's exactly where we're going to move on to. So fantastic, because the one thing that stood out from that presentation, and like I said, I won't tell show the whole presentation or tell the whole presentation was. We did it to an audience of pan-European fund selectors, and one of the questions was, how many jobs do these people in this bracket have? And the number has grown exponentially since the uh, the silent generation to the baby boomers to Gen X. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the average millennial is looking at having, is it 15 or 16 jobs or 15 or 16 different employers? 15 to 16 employers in their lifetime. Okay. Yeah. 
So, so literally, you know, changing jobs every two to five years, changing employers every two to five years. Um, and, and what I found even more surprisingly is that over a third of the high potential Gen Ys that I surveyed over a five-year period said they really weren't planning on staying with any given employer for more than two years, 24 months. Um, and, and, and that has, and when I share that with audiences around the world in all kinds of different industries, that doesn't surprise anyone anymore. In other words, so I think, I think we all, our own observation, uh, tells us that this is true. What I was going to ask, because I didn't ask at the time was whether this is something they want to do or something they've been attuned to do because of the way the the labor force has changed. We've seen the rise of the gig economy, which is a term I personally don't care for much, but it does describe that sort of pick up a job as you want. But is that because people are being forced to do these short-term jobs or because they actually want to do them over a short period? Yeah, well, it's both, actually. When I'm, particularly when I'm speaking to an HR audience, after I tell them that 90% of Gen Ys, you know, their own view is that they're probably going to change employers every two to five years, I then typically say, and it's at least partially your fault. So in other words, you created the context that made it less desirable for your young employees to stay with you. That has to do with pensions being less attractive, you know, going from, from a defined benefit to a defined contribution scheme is one reason. Golden handcuffs seem to have gone the way of the dodo, you know, so there's really, there's nothing tying one to a given employer. And you know, with the gig economy happening, more and more employers are actually setting up contracts instead of full-time employment schemes. And then conversely, that trains the Gen Y employee to say, okay, well, it seems that no one really wants me to stick around more than one, two, three years. So even if I'm not on a contract, the little voice in the back of my head is telling me I'm probably, I should probably start looking elsewhere. The other reason is that there's a paradigm among Gen Y is that they should be and expect to be developed continuously. And if they feel they're not getting personal and career development continuously, then they move more quickly than perhaps other generations to say, then I'll look elsewhere instead of to ask repeatedly of, of my employer. If you're not going to give it to me now, then I'll just take my take my services elsewhere. Thank you very much. And it seems to be, and this is something that came out in your presentation and came out in the background reading, that there are much more self-aware, I say yeah. they, I, I'm a millennial, but, it, but I don't think I fall into this trait, is this realization that I want things on my terms a lot more. I want mm -hmm. to be the one who is pushing to be motivated yeah. the person who is being like you said the people who are trying to be developed and if that's not forthcoming but then again i think i'm not going to turn this into a millennials bashing conversation but the baby boomers the gen x's do seem to see that as a an element of sort of self-involved me first mentality yeah. which again i imagine would rub up against employers who, if they're from those older generations yeah, I think when I'm Gen X and when I joined the workforce, there was much more this view that you got to pay your dues. You know, you sit, you sit down, you shut up, you don't leave the office until the boss leaves, and you learn. However, that happens organically, or even if you're not learning, you're paying your dues. But yeah, I think Gen Y is more self-aware, and they're more attuned to the idea that because the world is changing so quickly, because macro and personal adaptability is going to be so important. Um, you know, they always are looking for, you know, how can I be, uh, how can I be ready? How can I be more relevant? And Gen X and baby boomers partly didn't have to worry about that because the world wasn't changing quite so quickly when, when they entered the workforce. Um, so you could afford to say, well, I'll do five, six, seven years, and then I'll maybe ask for a little bit of uh, development or an executive education course or something. But I think out of necessity, you know, Gen Y's just simply can't wait that long. 
long. And yet they're Gen X and baby boomer masters and, uh, you know, and HR departments are still um, adhering to the old paradigm that, well, you know, first you pay your dues and then we'll develop you as a reward for tenure instead of need. And I would even say personally, the whole workforce, the need for continuous development is, is just that. It's continuous um, rather than every now and then and you know sporadic. I don't think that just works anymore. I don't think the world is, um, is set up in such a way these days where we can um, be so subservient to the needs of, 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 of others. We do have to think about ourselves as well. You know, I, 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 when I talk about generations, I generally begin by saying every generation simply reflects the context in which they were raised and the context in which they entered the workforce. And the workforce informed Gen Y that you have to look after yourself. So again, if companies are um, feeling negative about, about what they're experiencing, they at least partially have themselves to blame. Well, I think that was that was evidenced in we we did a vote during your discussion, and you asked what do they prioritize? What is their main area of interest? And the votes, and I, I would say this from experience, the majority of our readers are we do a forty under forty, but still the bulk would fall into the Gen X, and the vote was predominantly they want the company to succeed, whereas that's not really the case is it it's about that personal ambition that personal development well achieving personal your personal purpose but also helping clarify and helping the organization to live its collective purpose or mission and i think there's also a paradigm that is that is proving to be true that if you do that actually your organization is also commercially going to be more successful a lot of organizations that just look at maximizing the bottom line and ignoring their purpose and values actually tend to fall apart. I'm thinking of Enron, I'm thinking of Lehman Brothers, right? So um, so actually, I'm a bit of an optimist to say that uh, this, this additional focus on mission, on purpose, on values, actually concurrently helps you to be a more successful, sustainable business commercially. I think one thing we've seen during this pandemic, and this came up in the, the previous episodes that we did on millennials, was there has been a sort of as much as the millennials have been shaped, sorry, I'll say Gen Y as well, the Gen Ys have been shaped by the workforce and that has changed. The pandemic has also forced Gen X and baby boomers to adopt some Gen Y traits because we've seen a lot more push online. We've seen perhaps people in the older generations who didn't have to be that tech savvy, having to make themselves more familiar, especially if they're still in full-time employment. Do you think that that can be sustained though? Or do you see any first question is really, is that right? Have you seen that as somebody who watches this closely? Do you think the older generations have had to actually take on some of the Gen Y traits? Well, they have. I mean, certainly being more technically astute and digitally astute is certainly part of that. However, you know, the learning curve was painful. You know, I, 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 I want in, in consulting with companies on how can we be more relevant to serve Gen Y customers and clients, you know, they say, well, we know they're digitally savvy. So I'm going to show you our website and, and you look at the website and you tell us if, if this will appeal to the youth. <laughs> and I look at it and I think, okay, well, that's all fine and good. Now show me what your site looks like on a mobile device. And the thing is rubbish, right? <laughs> and, and, yet, and I was still having this conversation with clients, you know, just a couple of years ago. 
And you think, you know, surely you you, you need to catch, you, you should have caught up a decade ago, and yet we're still having this conversation. Because of course, you know, Gen Ys, and I I often talk about this in in, in keynotes, is Gen Ys, if you're hoping that Gen Ys are going to find you as customers, they're not going to find you on a PC. They're going to find no, you on your true. mobile device. Well, we had a roundtable at the start of last year where this came up. I suppose I had four fund selectors around the table when we were talking about the millennial experience. We still talk about it as if it's this sort of, this beast that has to be tamed. But one of them said, they're looking at it from the perspective. They were from, I genuinely can't remember, they were from a Swiss bank, but they were saying, they're now taking into account that most of the Gen Y investor crowd will be sat on a sofa on their phone where they can do all their banking, they can find love, they can do their shopping, they can watch sport, they can watch films, all on one device. And if you're not on that device, in a way that is accessible to them, you're not in that story. And it's a huge amount of untapped wealth. Yeah, you're irrelevant. And and let's face it now too, part of the reason we were dismissive of Gen Y is because, you know, even a few years ago, they didn't have purchasing a lot of purchasing power. They do now, not only because there are a lot of them, they are 50% of the global workforce, which means 50% of the earners in the world are Gen Y. But also, of course, the oldest Gen Ys are in their 30s. So now, you know, many of them are significant earners in their own right and have disposable income. So we can't, we can no longer say, well, you know, the only thing Gen, Gen Ys can afford are, you know, combs and French fries. Um, you know, they, uh, so, so it, it, they are, they are the significant um, customer and client base if you're looking for, you know, where are we going to find people with discretionary income? Well, we were talking beforehand about what that means in terms of trends and traits as well, because I mentioned that a lot of the funds that I've seen have been looking at how they, they get into this experience element of things. Is, is yeah. that Does that hold up from your research, Gen Y, are they much more experience-based? Absolutely, yeah, M- much more around the experience e- economy. And, you know, I've even asked as sort of um, p- peripheral questions, I asked, you know, what do you, what kind of things are you looking for in a holiday? And 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 over and over again, it was the experience you know, much more than just a location or, you know, a given hotel. Um, and, and, and you're seeing that even another, you know, how restaurants operate, how um, hotels operate is the experience economy is becoming much more uh, sophisticated and much more catered to uh, a clientele that are always looking for what's new and what's going to be genuinely moving instead of just, you know, something nice. Um, you see in London here, you see this in all kinds of ways where theater is no longer theater, you know, what pre COVID, of course, it's immersive or a restaurant is no longer just a restaurant. It's a cabaret or what have you. So, so yes, absolutely. I think, um, those, this is why, by the way, you have organizations like your Airbnbs being so successful as well, because they're thinking beyond just let's curate properties. You know, they're thinking about let's bring, let's pool people together and create experiences. For example, they realize that a lot of people visit certain cities um, because they're they're going there intentionally to learn a second language, to learn the language in that. So Airbnb are saying, let's create communities, let's create gathering spots for all of our Airbnb guests to come together and practice their language skills. You know, practice your English in San Francisco, practice your French in Paris, etc. It's really sophisticated. Do think, what Do you think that has taken much of a hit from the pandemic or do you think that experience element will be even keener coming out the other side of it? All these people who are, I mean, I constantly see it. I'm not the, on Instagram, the hashtag catch flights, not feelings. These people who want to be about all the time and not really wedded yeah. to anything. Do you think they will come out even more ferociously once they are able to travel? Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. But also what, what's interesting, and it took a while, but now you're seeing people trying to engineer experience in the digital s- sector. And I'm not just talking about VR, you know, but let, let, let's see, I, I have attended plays, you know, two hour theatrical experiences during lockdown entirely online. And I was involved. I was an involved audience member, not just sitting on my couch, you know, staring passively at a screen. Um, so I think we've also, the pandemic has for, have forced organizations in both leisure and entertainment to get creative and to move more quickly up their respective learning curves about how you can even offer experiences digitally. But yes, post-pandemic, I think there's going to be huge pent-up demand for holiday for experience, which is which is going to explode. I think, you know, those restaurants that can survive through lockdown are going to be in for, uh, I think, a, a boom. I think the uh, I've, heard, I've heard a number of people of pundits saying the Roaring Twenties are just around the corner, the second Roaring Twenties. I think that's right. Well, hopefully the fashion doesn't come back because I think that's still got a long way <laughs> off what, we've, what we'd want to see people. But uh, facetious comments aside, one thing that is quite important and one thing that, that has been prioritised by Gen Y is mental health. And we have seen yeah. that in a number of things. And I know there's a, a reporter at City Work called Ollie Smith who's done a fantastic amount of work on that, who alarmingly might actually be Gen Z falling back into a <laughs> just grouping everybody into the same thing. But it does seem that the, that is much more prominent than it has been with any other generation. What knock-on effect could that have for the workplace and for leadership? Yeah. Is that something that then has to be really considered? Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, well, well, it's it, well, it's it's one of two things. It's either that this organization that that Gen Y have more of um, they've suffered more from mental wellness issues, and or this is a generation that has been willing to um, discuss it. So in other words, Gen X and baby boomers may have suffered from perhaps equal amounts of mental wellness issues, but it was, um, there was a bias against discussing it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the done thing. And so, and so it was simply suppressed or repressed. I don't know. I, I'm saying that it could be, but it could be both. Nevertheless, um, I think what you'll see, and we're already seeing it, is organizations, um, HR departments particularly, spending a lot more time on mental wellness as part of their health, safety, and wellness initiatives and policies. Health and wellness used to be how to make sure someone doesn't break their leg in the office or in the factory. And now uh, mental health is much more at the fore. Um, and it much more is it's okay to discuss it. And um, managers are being much more attuned and trained to discuss it, to look out for warning signs and for that to be legitimate you know, reasons to, uh, for discussion in the workforce and even for people to get treatment or even to take time off. Whereas I think, again, you know, as Gen X, I think to say you needed time off because of mental health, there are a lot of organizations, frankly, when I was you know, coming up through the ranks where that would that was just not the done thing. There's a great comedian here called John Robbins who does a lot of work on mental health. And he said he wants to get to a point where talking about breaking your leg is as similar as talking about your mental health concerns. It's not treated with any difference. Right. It's still a physical ailment. It's still something that could impede how you function as a person. I think yeah. we're still a while away from that, but I know yes. Citywide, we did some mental health first aid training for the first time ever last year. So people are becoming more aware to it. And I think you get that rolling cycle as, as time changes and millennials move into more positions of leadership, those concerns and considerations will move with them, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely right. You know, people talk about health and wellness. You know, and companies share their health and wellness policy uh, or health and safety. But you know, again, most of it, if you look at the fine print, it seems far 
too much of it is still about you know breaking bones and slipping on the on on wet surfaces etc so yes we still have a ways to go but i i wanted to finish on this point because it was really interesting you you made about new zealand and how they yeah. have sort of tried to to add that in could you explain what they've actually done because they seem to yeah. have taken it to another level yeah, sometimes organizations push back when I talk about the need for discussing, you know, wellness and mental health and say, well, we're too large of an organization. We can't do that. And, you know, I just make the point, look, there are huge macro examples where people are paying attention to um, wellness. Look at New Zealand and their finance minister, not not like, like a secretary of health and wellness, their finance minister, Grant Robertson, right, obviously reports directly to their prime minister, Jacinda Ardern. He said, if I only pay attention to GDP growth, I'm not successfully doing my job. Because if we're going to be a prosperous society, surely we have to measure prosperity by more than GDP. So he says we have to look at you know, homelessness, we have to look at sexual and domestic violence, we have to look at mental health, and we have to measure those things. And part of the reason why he's, he says New Zealand isn't where it should be along, on, along those criteria is we haven't measured them. And we, because we haven't measured them, we haven't done anything about it. But if we put those KPIs at the same level as GDP growth and say these are all the multiple metrics of our society's health and prosperity, then we will be a healthier society, right? Uh, the de facto result is if we pay attention to those things and, and respond to those things, we will be a healthier society. But it's interesting, I thought that it that came from their finance minister um, who said these are all part and parcel of being a society that can define itself as a as a healthy or well society. So, you know, certainly it's part of it, part of the, the challenge has not been scale. It's been that we have not uh, assessed the problem and therefore haven't had the the means or the argument to make to spend time and resources on fixing it. A positive step, still a long way to go, but it's been illuminating as always. So thank you very much, Adam. Thank you for talking to me today. Great pleasure. Thank you.